going to get started now. If anybody comes in, they can just sneak in. Uh, my name is Paul Coyer. I'm a research professor here at the School of Politics, for those of you that don't know me. Um, also, for those of you unfamiliar with what IWP is, we are not actually a think tank. Many people assume that we are. We do, in fact, think here. But we are a graduate school for foreign policy and national security. At least we like to pretend that we think. Uh, we have five master's degrees and 17 one-year graduate certificates in various fields. Um, Jihan here is, uh, is uh, very articulate, very smart, very charming, and uh, I took to her immediately when I met her a couple of months ago. She also is in the unique position of having a lot of experience in the United States as well as being uh, a minister for, uh, state minister for health and environment in the central upper Nile state for the Republic of South Sudan. Um, right now, she is living in Rockville. She tends to go back and forth between the South Sudan and, and the United States. She's a seasoned diplomat, an advocate of uh, peace through development programs, um, including them being a member of the founding board of the South Sudan Women Empowerment Network, advocating the empowerment of women through public forums and workshops, educating and deliberating the country's laws through the transitional constitution of the government of the Republic of South Sudan. Uh, to ensure women's participation and affirmative action in developing the state's permanent constitution. Uh, more broadly than women's issues, she is just concerned about the thriving of her new state in general. So we're here to hear uh, a little bit about, from her, a brief historical summary of how South Sudan came to be. Uh, many of us here will be familiar with that story, some may not be, so she'll give a summary of that, as well as talk about what are the challenges that are facing South Sudan today uh, institutionally, culturally, economically, politically, in other ways, and how it is that we in the United States and the West in general might be able to help. Jihan? Thank you. Um, good evening. Um, I'm pleasured and honored, really, to be here. Thank you, Paul. Um, it's it's kind of interesting when uh, you're called to speak and we, with so much passion, whereby everybody else doesn't sh share the same passion. Uh, my passion for South Sudan is not just because I'm from South Sudan. My passion for South Sudan is because I've participated from very young age, and don't be deceived by my look. I am <laughs> older, very much older than what I look. <laughs> I'm also a mother of five children, and uh, like he said, um, a seasoned diplomat, because in my earlier career, I worked here in Washington, D.C. after the signing of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement 2005, uh, establishment of uh, the government of South Sudan within Sudan. Now, how did South Sudan come about is simply as from the uh, passion itself of being South Sudanese. Sudan, uh, the largest country, used to be the largest country in Africa, as we know, in the northeast part of it geographically. But then um, was colonized by the Anglo-Egyptian. And uh, right after that, there was uprises for liberation. But before that, as the Anglo-Egyptians were leaving the country, um, they looked into South Sudan. South Sudan is. The, the geographical structure of South Sudan is actually quite vast and, and very equatorian, um, equator, kind of. So you've got this, um, the Sudan over there because River Nile crosses over. And so it's kind of very green and rainy most of the time. It's very rich land. 
And, but the people there, they are more tribal um, ethnic groups that are more nomadic, caterers, uh, and some of them are agriculturists. And, and so when the Anglo-Egyptians came from Egypt, settled in the northern part, which is Khartoum, now the current capital of Sudan, they settled in the north and they believed so much that um, that's it. The south was very much uh, difficult to access. And at some point, there was a discussion, which was, uh, it came under uh, Juba Conference in 1947, when they thought of annexing South Sudan to East Africa because of the culture of uh, the people over there and the ethnic types of group. The North was mixed up with the Arab traders that came in earlier before the Anglo-Egyptians. And so you've got the Arabs settled in the North, and so the cultural of Arabs was there, and so also the religion of Arabs. So then you see there is more of Islamic culture in the North more than in the South, which is ethnically diverse. Um, they, they worship different uh, lots at that time until Christianity came in. And as well, there is presence of Islamic uh, region, uh, religion over there. Now, 1947, the conference was not accomplished. That is when the concept of South Sudan came about. And for me, I was raised in the north. Because of my father's nature of job, he was in the northern part of South Sudan. So all my education was in the north. I spoke in Arabic from elementary all the way to high school. And so was very much uh, part of the North, but was a South Sudanese. So there was always a question, are you from South Sudan? And so studying in school, looking at the geography, there was not, no country called South Sudan. And so that has been the norms of speaking, of uh, imputing the idea of South Sudanese. And so South Sudanese that lived in the North knew they are not part of the North. And so the division that you see today did not start because of the political uh, environment that's there. It is the notion, the ethnic culture, and it has a lot to do with the colonialism, therefore. Um, so, 1955, uh, Sudan as a country gained its independence from the ugly Egyptian and became an independent country. Right at that time, the southerners felt left out because in the formation of the government in Khartoum, all these segments, not even one third, out of the 300, I think about five or six people only were put in the government altogether. So South Sudanese, not only did they feel having a separate identity, but they were also felt left out in participating in power sharing. Um, so it's not only the SPLM that started, it's way beyond that. Um, so they, they, Anyanya one is started, that was the first conflict. Anyanya two followed, and um, 1972 is when the first peace agreement took place in Addis Ababa. Uh, the peace agreement was in such a way that let's try and, and keep this country together. Let's try and understand the dimension of the ethnic groups that are there. Um, that did not leave for long, from 1972 down to 83, 1983, another conflict came up. What is the reason for all this? It's simply the agreement of 1972 was not really fulfilled. And still, there was much marginalization of the people, whether it's the identity, of affiliation, these are South Sudanese, difficulties to be part and parcel. Now socially, there was a lot of engagement there. There have been social marriages and, and so on. So we've got cousins here and there across the border between South Sudan and Sudan. But the political and economic development were not equal. South Sudan remained marginalized in many ways. And so I need to mention that the marginalization was not only just the South, but the peripheries. Now, the whole of Sudan has ethnic groups and tribes. 
uh, that are similar to South Sudan. So then you've got the West part now has this massive genocide that was recognized a couple of years ago, Darfur. You are aware of Darfur region. You've got in the farther east part, the Bija groups. You've got in the north, the uh, Nuban people. And um, all these groups of people felt um, not part of the Sudan. And Sudan was more or less the center. Now, 1983, when Dr. John Garang and his fellows went out, um, mutiny started in Borjongle. It was to call for the rights of South Sudanese and the marginalized people. This is what gave the SPLM of today, then and today, the significant and the perception to be a national uh, uh, movement. Uh, the SPLM it was more inclusive. The SPLM speaks for South Sudan People Liberation Movement, Sudan People Libera Liberation Army. So the movement had its political engagement, and then the army was the one that doing the aggressions against the government of Sudan in Khartoum. Uh, it was to speak about ending uh, marginalization, giving access to resources, and education development to the whole country, not only just Khartoum. Because if you go all the way to Dungla in the north, there's no development. If you go to the east, except for Port Sudan, because it's the only port by the river sea through which the oil production is uh, transported out of the country. Even for us, South Sudan, we are still doing that. We transport our oil through Sud South Sudan to Sudan to Port Sudan. Uh, the marginalization call was uh, quickly adopted by all the marginalized groups uh, <laughs> until today. Um, SPLM, during the liberation time, came up with understanding and concept. It started developing not only the constitutions, but the structures, uh, the manifesto, the constitution, and how to run it. It has two wings, government and military. And when they were taking over regions, they encouraged the population on two things. Land ownership, which means once they take over a space from the government uh, control, then it, the ownership of that land is given to the people. So until today, it's becoming a challenge for us because the land belongs to the people. So if you want to do any infrastructure, regardless of what it is, you have to sit with the chiefs of the land of that area and kind of compromise with them, get into a deal for them to allow you to do a road, build a hospital, a school, or whatever. But that was a concept that was given at that time. So then development can take place. And it was essential at that time to allow the people of the land to take ownership. Now this is your space, build it, develop it, do agriculture, and also to take away the dependency syndrome. Now uh, those kind of like we fell off from those visions of the SPLM. Uh, the vision of the Sudan People Liberation Army was focused on New Sudan. The New Sudan was not just a geographical structure, but the New Sudan was more of the people, the, the marginalized groups that I mentioned earlier. However, when the peace agreement was signed, 2005, and before that, we've had series of talks, machacos, and we've got also um, the Sudan Peace Act. And actually, I'm honored to acknowledge uh, Faith McDonald here in our midst. She was instrumental. She works with IRD, Institute for Religious Democracy, and uh, the Sudan Church Alliance. At that time, 2002, they uh, and we were part of it actually, because I was in Washington when we did a lot of demonstration against the Sudan and, and, and also in, in front of the Congress in the Hill, 
to voice out our concern and how do we want to establish the nation of South Sudan and the people and get them out of marginalization. So 2002, there was the Sudan Peace Act. That is effectively the time when uh, the, the US government and people actually involved in, in South Sudan affairs. Um, 91, so 19, 1983, the movement started very strongly, 91. The current leadership of the opposition had a hiccup. We had several breaches, not only from opposition, from within us. So in 91, there was a breach and uh, within the leadership itself, similar to what happened in, in 2013 between the, the leader and his vice. Uh, that repeated itself over and over and over. Uh, differences on opinion, differences on how to do things. Um, and of course, uh, the ethnic affiliation kind of blew up the whole thing out of proportion. But the US played a big role in bringing the two leaders together at that time. And the reconciliation was done here in, in Washington. And it went on, um, 2005, uh, there was, in fact, the Machacos Peace Agreement, uh, 2004. And uh, five is when we signed the Comprehensive Peace Agreement famously known as the CPA. The Comprehensive Peace Agreement had protocols. Uh, government, uh, power sharing, wealth sharing, uh, borderline, and the ethnic coexistence. The sixth protocol of the Comprehensive Peace Agreement were between South Sudan, Liberation Movement, and the Khartoum government. And those protocols, at the end, give, give the whole country, which is Sudan, a six-year interim period. Within the interim period, there was two options. Actually, Dr. John Garang proudly had a very good structure, and maybe uh, if I was keen enough to do a power presentation, whereby he had the whole country, one Sudan. And the problem there is, he suggested, number one, two Sudans interlinked together. Whereby, 2005, we had one government of South Sudan, one country, with the capital Khartoum, and then South Sudan had a sub-country, government of Southern Sudan. That mandated us to be able to do a lot of things and actually help the country transition to becoming independent. Uh, but before independency, so there was one country, two government, and there was an option of two countries, as it is, and there was even an option of another one country. These all are possibilities. He put them in his diagram. Why? Because the ethnic people that are there. He looked into the people. And this is one of the points that I wanted to share with you today. Regardless of the politics and the economy that's going on right now, can we take off our eyes and look at the people? The same people that were struggling to find their self-identification since 1947. And next to East Africa, no. And, and now a big population is displaced in East Africa, Kenya, Uganda. Um, the, the issue of development and education and access to resources. And when it comes to development, South Sudan is a very rich land, extremely rich. The whole of Sudan is. Um, River Nile itself is a big resource with all its expenses. And as the River Nile exits from Uganda, from Lake Victoria through South Sudan, there is a massive land called the Sud because it's just water. 
any time of the year. There's flooded water there, and when the river floods during the rainy season, expels over and increases the space where the Sudlan is. The Sudlan is significantly very rich with resources beyond measure. Some of them have not even been explored as yet. You've got blocks of oil in a very lump sum. You've got national park, na uh, what do you call it, wildlife. Um, the wildlife resources was done here by the National Geography in South Sudan, and it turned out to be bigger than Kenya and Tanzania together the wildlife in South Sudan, but nobody knows. Nobody, that's a resource. That can jack up our GPE greatly, right? Our uh, regular income can rise, uh, yearly income for the government. We won't really need to ask the World Bank or anybody to help us, if we can develop those resources. Um, three national parks are there. Uh, minerals, from gold to uh, copper and so on. Um, all these resources are available in South Sudan, but they are not explored. Um, part of the conflict is the resources, and we know very well. Once resources are there, there's always an issue of um, competition on access to those resources. Uh, it is playing a big role even until today. So then the Comprehensive Peace Agreement lived for six years. Ideally, it has two options. Option one is to keep the country together, and so there was national development funds there to be able to keep the country united. Try to convince the South Sudanese that they can continue to live with the Northern and the other groups of people and no need to divide, no need to separate. There was an option of separation through the referendum. 20, 2009 there was election and of course uh, Bashir won again to be the president of Sudan. Uh, president Selfakir, current president of uh, South Sudan was the vice president and um, the structure went on, he was more in Khartoum, Dr. Riyak Machar was in the south, and um, six years just passed by. We had a lot of resources at that time. Amazing amount of resources that actually breed into today's phenomena that is known as corruption. Those resources were there and were not really properly uh, used. Um, not only by the South Sudanese, but even by institutions like the World Bank, because uh, at that point, Dr. John Garang uh, reached out to the World Bank and other institutions and told them, you need to be able to uh, help us out. We can't. We don't have the capacity. We're just coming out from conflict. We give you these resources. Can you use them to help us develop the land? Few structures came about. There's a road, national road between Juba and, and Numuli, uh, smaller than the amount that was used for it. Uh, a couple of programs were there, including diaspora skills transfer. That was uh, the USAID that funded it. And I was uh, part of that diaspora skills transfer. 2006, we, we were selected, 10 of us here in the US. We traveled to the 10 states of South Sudan at that time, participated. What we did was assessment on health and education. And not only with the government, but we went down to the counties, the villages. And the structure of South Sudan is the national government, the state government, the county, the payam, and the Buma as the smallest unit of governance. And so we went down all the way to the counties and met the commissioners. We met the individuals. We met, and I was in 2006, down on the grassroots for one month, used all kind of means of transportation. But what amazed me was the, the organizational level of the people on the ground. They, um, they know what they wanted, they just didn't know how to get it. And so it's the same thing as of today. Uh, 
there is a knowledge, there is structures, there is, uh, we have South Sudan Development Plan that was launched 2011. Uh, the development plan was focused on developing all the different structures and use, utilizing the resources thereof. It is there in paper. We have, within the Ministry of Health, we have structures, we have uh, programs to counteract malaria. Unfortunately, today, as I'm speaking to you, it's in paper. People are dying still out of malaria, which it could be implemented the right way, can help. Environmental projects uh, to help with the, when you are doing oil exploration, you have to also prevent, protect the environment, and so on. So, I can talk forever on this, but I want us to focus on when South Sudan gained its independence, 2011, after the referendum that took place. So let me take you back. 2005 was the CPA agreement signed. Six years went by, nothing happened. Sudan was not attractive to South Sudanese. They went on a referendum. People voted in country and out of country. We had, here in the US, we had five centers. And I had the privilege of actually supervising one here in Washington, DC. It was in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, people came from all the neighboring regions. The diaspora that was went out, and we had two different types of diaspora. People that came out as refugees, and then we had the so-called lost boys. The lost boys and lost girls was, they were given that name because they were young children that went following the adults during the wartime, and of course carried guns, and they became child soldiers. So Dr. John Garan came up with the concept and said, no, we can't fight because we will all finish together. The children has to be removed, put in schools, they were put in separate camps, and then there was an approach of programs that was put together. It, it ended up giving the name uh, Lost Boys just to attract funds. You know here in the US, in order to get funds, you've got to have all these creepy names and structures and pictures. Uh, that are put all the way, all the time, is when you're asking for food, uh, South Sudan's claim to be having famine, so you've got, but I'm from South Sudan. I live in the US, but most of my time I'm there. People are smart, beautiful, and all that. Yes, they are in need, that is true. So the, 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 the humanitarian situation that is erecting, he, that is now currently in the, in the it's, it's both politically and economically made. We need to interfere and make changes onto that. Um, the World Instructures, UN, World Bank, IMF, the international community, including the US, participated in helping South Sudan do its referendum successfully, provided all the resources. And during that time, there was this talk that South Sudan will get into conflict. These people will not have a peaceful referendum. But we did, 99% <coughs> overwhelming vote. U.S. helped us, but was also shocked because the commissioner and the deputy commissioner of the referendum commission were called over to the U.S. They came here and they asked them one question here at the USIP. How did you do it? We don't know. People came and voted. That's all happened. And even today, it's all about the people. People voted in the country. You have women pregnant. <coughs> delivering on the line, standing there to vote for referendum. We had here, it was crispy call, it was ice. Nebraska, some of the Midwest areas, New Hampshire, even Washington was snowing. 
but really didn't matter. People came in buses, they lined up for hours in that freezing cold of Washington, D.C., and all over across the U.S., and they voted. Why? Because the concept of South Sudan, our own land. We've always been called South Sudanese, but now we are going to have our own country called South Sudan. So when the naming came of the country, there was this discussion whether we call it Kush, we call it, we said no, South Sudan. We've always been called South Sudan, South Sudan it is. It raised its flag, uh, everybody was excited, in country and outside of country, and there was anticipation and perception of peace dividends. Now, level of education in South Sudan is very low because of repeated conflicts. You have got all the 50s, 60s, 70s, a break in the 70s, we pick up again in the 80s, 90s, until 2000, and we are still in fight, until today. When, when do you educate children? Um, it's low, but that one has been <coughs> offset, because when the diaspora, people who went out as refugees or as lost boys, they gain access to education, they gain access to knowledge, expertise. Today, I have three that I know of that are working with the government of the United States of America. We have a young man that came in high school, studied high school, did his degree, did his master's, he's with the minister, we call it minister, here you call it department, Department of Interior. Immediately the right hand of the Secretary of Department of Interior, uh, supervising oil projects. He's a petroleum engineer. Very young, but when he sits in the audience, he commands the audience because of his knowledge. We have another person with the FDA and another person, so they are there. They didn't magically do it, they went to school, high school, college, and then when they come up with the projects, they can, I don't know if some of you have seen this movie called The Hidden Figures. The Hidden Figures, it's, uh, it's about those ladies who did, who knew their knowledge, they had knowledge, simple regardless of their color, background, they had knowledge. And they were challenged because of their background, but they sticked to the knowledge, and that knowledge took them further to where they were, and they made a difference historically. In this country, United States of America, we have similar people there. We have a very vast diaspora that can be engaged in turning things around and making the best out of South Sudan. South Sudan is a buffer country because it's surrounded, it's a landlocked, We've got Sudan, the longest border with Sudan. We have a small portion with Eritrea, Ethiopia on the east. We have on the southern part, southeast is Kenya, Uganda, and then you have uh, Central Republic on the west, a little portion of Chad. And uh, you see all these eight countries, they surround us. And they have great hope in us because of the resources we have. We have developed a very large employment for them, for those diaspora people from the neighboring countries in the region because they come in as expatriates, paid lump sum of money, they go back and build their country. Our diaspora are still outside and they are in need of actually being able to be helped to go in the country and to be able to develop the land and participate. A big number of them are there. I am a diaspora that went back through the diaspora skills transfer. After spending a month on the ground, I was able to come back and be part of the mission establishment, be part of the diplomatic mission. And then I was called, 2012, to go and work as a minister for health and environment in one of the counties, one of the states that I worked in. And then that continued to be the case. 
Diaspora is a big resource, human capital that can be invested, but the right way. There's a lot of confusion now with the political dimension um, towards use of the diaspora, and they're looking forward to be able to be directed rightfully to, to participate. Many of them are doing great jobs wherever they are, whether in the US, in Europe, Australia, and, and, and Canada. Um, human resource development within the country also. We've been, we had efforts with the help of EGAT, <laughs> the Regional Development Agency, um, the Intergovernment inter uh, Development Agency, EGAT, and the AU during the different negotiation on peace agreement, uh, even the recent one, they supply us with human resource. We've got a lot of capacity coming in, helping the country to develop. That continue to be the case, and we are grateful for the region for standing with us, not only during the negotiation, even now into the leap into the development process. The current uh, events are mixed uh, events of, of course, politics. 2011, when South Sudan raised its flag, 2015, five years from independence, according to the transitional constitution. And I need to mention something about the constitution that um, Sudan had its constitution which became interim during the peace agreement. From 2005 to 2011, we had an interim constitution that enabled South Sudan to be a government structure of its own and gave it that mandate to be able to go out and be represented. So South Sudan had missions all over the world had abilities to establish contracts and, uh, and engage bilateral engagement with other countries, even though it was within Sudan. That was a mandate by interim constitution. We kept that interim constitution for a period of time. When we raised our flag, then we developed our own transitional constitution. And from 2011 to 2015, we were supposed to have elections. The country was supposed to prepare, put the people back again, and develop it and uh, develop the uh, permanent <coughs> constitution. Unfortunately, until today, we still don't have a permanent constitution. We're still on the transitional constitution, which keeps being amended every now and then, give powers here and there, and eventually, uh, we have the structure that is where it is. South Sudan became from 10 states, 28 states, 32 states. Why? Because the current leadership was looking into how do you give powers to the people. But then, when you give power to someone who's not well equipped, it is abused. Whether it is militarily, well, economically, socially, any power in a hand that is not equipped is abused. Uh, that is the state of affair now, where we have presence of so many militias and so many conflicts, pockets of conflicts here and there, um, lack of resources like food ac accessibility. And the country is identified as below poverty level with all the resources that I mentioned earlier. So then there is a need for us to look into what brought the country into there, whether it is the ability to support it, the ability to help restructure its institutions. Because by the end of the day, it's about institutional structures. It's about the, the government itself. The government is nothing but its institutions. You've got here World Institute, Institute for World Politics. You, you have your different departments. You have your different responsibilities. By the end of the day, every department has been given, mandated, 
be given resources and a mandate to get certain jobs done, report back. That has not been the case there. The resources that were given out to the different institutions were not really put in the right way, neither were they reported back, causing the elements of corruption, lack of accessibility, lack of these resources to the mass that is there. So we need to look into the institution of the Republic of South Sudan by starting reviewing the transitional constitution because that will give powers to the right people and will, will enable the right people to have the right powers to do the right things. Um, there is a need now to do that. There's a need for partnership. If United States was able to partner with South Sudan, people and government, through the liberation time, through the referendum, through independence, then now is the time. You can't you can turn your back now. To partner, yes, there have been mistakes. Lots of them. And on earth, there's always a mistake. Anybody is bound to do mistakes. But when you have a structure and you have laws to guide you, then you are able to actually manage and overcome and do the right thing. It is imperative that the search for identity should not be lost in the middle of all the politics. The identity of a South Sudanese, identity with integrity, with character, and, and it's not about having resources, but it's about, you call me right, don't call me wrong. When you're calling me, and you misspell my name is something, but when you're calling my name with the intention of insult, then that's different. So the insult that's been given towards the people of South Sudan has to stop. Insult of calling them marginalized, yes, they were marginalized, but when you say it insulting, it's bad. When you come around and you see you taking pictures of hunger people, and you come around and, and, and do fundraising, and, and it's very unfortunate today, the, the world humanitarian agencies are richer than the countries that they are supporting, very much. All of them, including the UN. The, the salary of a UN person, where they live, they live in very luxurious, very comfortable, just for them to do an assessment, one plus one plus three plus, you know, household assessment. For me, when I was in the state, these agencies, they'll come and do assessment and distribution of mosquito nets. And I'll be like, okay, bureaucracies. How do you do bureaucracies in structures that are not there? Bureaucracies work when you have an institution, proper laws and regulation in place. We don't have them, but it's mixed up. It was imputed into the country by the international community. Unfortunately, the bureaucracies thereof. So um, the blame game of who's right, who's wrong, the conflict that happened 2013, who started it, where it ended, thousands died, millions displaced. We can go around and about, and I have some of my colleagues from the different groups that are here, because uh, 11 was the independent, 2013 we had the conflict between the leadership that spilled over to the whole country, and 2016 there was another fight. We have pockets of militias that were being sponsored by either our former uh, opposition in Sudan or by the current in-country opposition within South Sudan. These militias are there. There are groups of army people or seemingly what they do in both army and health is they train you for three, six weeks and they give you either the gun or the syringe. Both of them are very dangerous. Three, six weeks and if you have a syringe, 
You walk around giving injections. Malaria injections are simple. Anybody could do it, right? But then guess what? The population calls you a doctor. Then I'm a doctor. Assumably. It's the same thing with the army. Few of them went out, were able to do a gun, uh, throw a grenade there, do this, march around, but they're not trained military. They form, they are told to go abduct cattle. They become a militia that abduct children and cattle and women, disrupting security. Some of them will be commanded, and then the commander in charge, whether he's equipped or not, is given titles that goes from major on to become a general, major general. I don't know those titles, but they're there. So having a computer doesn't make me an IT. Having a syringe doesn't make you a doctor. Having a gun doesn't make you an army person. But education is. So there's a call to educate these people. There's a call to organize them. They have a great sense of common sense because the humanitarian agencies that are working on the ground during the conflict, um, they will go on with their satellites and dishes. And, and so there is access to phone. Everybody in the village doesn't know one plus one is equal to two, but they have a phone. Um, people have access to seeing the international world through movies, the satellite, small TV, it's there. So there is a mixture. And I remember Dr. John Garang actually mentioned that when we gain our liberation, we are going to join the world from where it is. We are not going to start from zero because we were in conflict and people were developing. But when we joined and we are independent, we raise our flag, we are known as an independent country, one of the sovereign nations, we will immediately plug in. It's happening, but it's not happening in the right way. Because you've got the diaspora I mentioned, you've got the people that are in country, you've got the resources and that much. So there is a need to align up. There's a need to structure. Let us, my call for today, being accepting to come and speak here, and thank you for allowing me to speak to you, is to let you know that it, this is a country with people. South Sudan has 64 tribes. There was a discussion on 65 the other day, but I saw a list of 64 so far. Um, I call them groups of people. People that always and will always continue to live there were put together in that land with that massive resources, <coughs> little education. But big number of them was in diaspora. Bring them in, help conform the constitution, make it permanent, help put the security elements in place, help demobilize. Now, one of the challenges for the current events is this. The government of South Sudan, from inception, 2005, when it was called government of Southern Sudan, then it became government of South Sudan, was the sole income, was the sole employer, the only employer in the country. We didn't have private sectors or other institutions that can employ and provide resources. Next to the government of South Sudan was the humanitarian agencies that give free food. So. Conflict developed trauma. Conflict developed dependency syndrome. And then you have the government as the only source. So I am a state minister. <coughs> I'm the only person in a house of 30 to 50 people. Could be my children, including my extended families. And I am the one who buys food for everybody that's there and provide for them the daily living expenses, including education. My salary, it is what it is. 
it should be enough for my family, supposingly, but that's not the case. So how do you do this? How do we get rid of dependency syndrome? I know of groups of diaspora, young people who went from here, they opened a small organization, micro-businesses, and they're barely making it, but they're able to employ one here, one there, one there. So we can boost up businesses in South Sudan. <coughs> Empower those small businesses that are there. Women are doing a great job. In my state, we did uh, cooperative, agricultural cooperative. Small farms and, and women were able to put it around. And, and s but we have a challenge, infrastructure. So it is empowerment of businesses, but as you do that, you've got to bring in roads. You have to develop not small roads, but real roads. Connect the country, and that has been always the, the one of the aspiration of the, the leadership of the SPLM. Then and now, development infrastructure. If you develop infrastructure, I Trust me, people know what to do. They'll be able to move goods from point A to point B. That is resources. Education will help people to also think more objectively and will cut down on dependency syndrome. <coughs> the fact that the country's been in war for so long, trauma has increased. And you know very well here in the US, I know there's programs. When a military assignment takes place, you go out in the field. When you come back, there's a season where you are treated trauma treatment, because you've been exposed to violence. You've got psychiatric treatment because of the nightmares. You know, seeing violence, seeing people killed, whether you know or not, it, it becomes <coughs> part of you. Uh, 2013, when the conflict happened in Jongle, I was there. I was the Minister of Health in Jongle. I was busy, I didn't pay attention to the politics happening in Juba. Juba to Bor is four hours by road, 20 minutes by flight, those small uh, flights. Um, what was I busy with? I was establishing center for training of mid-health cadres. It is there now. Even in the middle of the crisis, I have 50 students. They are studying in Kampala. Nurses, uh, clinical officers, and midwives. They were selected by exams. They came and sat in the National Ministry of Health in Juba. Had the exams, were, were selected very vigorously. And the top were taken. We received the fund from UK Aid through an organization, ICMDA, International Christian Dental and Medical Association. They took the funds and came to me and said, we want to help you. Because, <coughs> believe it or not, I have a very large number of doctors, physicians, general doctors. Currently, we are working on getting them specialized. I have a sister of mine. She is a doctor, and she's specializing in dermatology. Like others, this different specialization. But, when I looked into the Ministry of Health in Jongle, and I only have doctors and then local staff. I didn't have mid cadres. I didn't have nurses. Nurses here in the US are paid almost close to the doctor plus, to the best of my knowledge. And they are very important to the health sector. And that's only when you say you have a proper running hospital, when you have adequate, well, uh, professional <coughs> nurses. So then, all the programs that I had in mind, I couldn't do them, I had to freeze, and I started looking into how do we establish the health center. We did all we did, and January 2014 was the time when we were going to launch the institution. After we have streamlined, selected, everything is ready. We had one of the old clinics, we were going to expand it, make it an institute. I had the hospital in Bor was renovated. 
Um, Canadian aid helped build a couple of sectors, including maternity ward, state of the art, right there. And my argument was like, when I go to the area, I see international agencies and humanitarian aid, they come and build a village, um, a hut. And what they say is, well, the whole place is hut. We could just do a hut and give them service there. No, no, no. We are transforming the nation. You build a structure and everybody else would be transformed within that region and become a, a, you know, a developed area. So Bohr Hospital was developed. We had very good structures there. We had good doctors. We didn't have nurses. We started building institutions for nurses and clinical officers. The conflict in Juba happened with the leadership going into their own differences, political uh, differences within the SPLM. I literally choose not to discuss that. Because my interest today is not about just boosting or correcting or pointing who's right or who's wrong, but I want to take this opportunity to talk about the people of South Sudan and that they deserve better identification, they deserve better opportunities, they deserve to compete. I heard a discussion when the, minister, the Prime Minister of England visited here with current President uh, Trump, and they had a discussion on CNN, and there are certain points that I picked up when she was saying that dealing with the world, they, are not, they have to retreat from going into the country and helping it stand, or managing those countries that are called developing countries. It is time to help them stand, raise the standard. So if US and UK are joining hands to be world power and empower their military, specifically, then those countries have to be engaged to raise the standard and join in, whether it's the NATO or the other groups. So I, I thought, that is something. So then that's the call for me. I don't want you to go with your give out. No. I want you to look at me as a South Sudan and ask me what do I have? What plans and what, how do I want to get out of where I am? And I'll tell you specifically. The peace agreement that was signed 2015 to end the conflict between the current president and the former vice president was made outside and given to them. Both of them had restriction. Both of them had reservation. One had 14 and the other one had 16, but there were reservations. And those reservations ended up by, within a year, when they were supposed to join hands and move the country forward, under the government of national unity, the reservation surfaced and actually implemented themselves, blew out of proportion. The country went again into a conflict. Um, no handout. Let's, let's, let's listen to these people and see how they want to get it done. And partner. I can call for partnership. Come partners, look at the resources that I mentioned, they're there. They need to be explored. But then before we explored, we need to do the infrastructure. And before we do the infrastructure, there is a need for peace and security. There is, United Nations is there. They are supposed to be helping, but let's do partnership with South Sudan, government and people. Um, the land is very rich, but it's also a buffer. Because we have, on the east part, Kenya and eastern of Kenya, Somalia, there's presence of Al-Shabaab. On the west part, we have Shad, but then beyond Shad, there is Nigeria and there is Boko Haram. In the northern part, we have Sudan and beyond Egypt, and you go further and there is ISIS. 
Now ISIS doesn't have borders. They can go in any time. And so leaving South Sudan in conflict zone, it becomes a petri dish for cul our culture for violence. And it will spill over and goes out of control. So if today in the United States we are calling for security within, security in the, in, uh, around the globe, then it's very important to look of the elements of securities. What will it take for South Sudan and the United States to partner on security elements? What will it take for the businesses here to go down and start engaging? Because initially, before the political conflict right now, the conflict was because of lack of resources, food and access to water. People will move from here, cattle abduction was a big issue, and then this tribal nomad movement between themselves uh, without much to do. If you engage the youth today with the youth women, they can do a difference. I'll close with the women. South Sudan Women Empowerment Network was established here in the United States of America. A group of women, including myself, we started discussing online the situation in South Sudan. 2005 is when we started talking. As we raised our, as we signed the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, and, and we discussed different topics, and then we decided to come and have a face-to-face -face meeting. And SWEN was formed, South Sudan Women Empowerment Network. It moved from here, it operated for a little bit, registered 50C13 with the IRS here, and um, when the election took place 2009, we moved to Khartoum, because until then, Sudan was one with two government. We engaged with our population and educated them on the importance of participating in elections. So then President Kiir was elected for South Sudan. But she remained in Sudan, Khartoum. 2010, we started moving towards south and had a presence in Juba because it was important for us also to be part and parcel of the referendum, which was another le uh, election to ensure that uh, we are all participating in it. When you register, you must come and vote in order to make sense. Don't register if you know you're not gonna come to vote. Those are messages we went out. Then, as we raised our flag, we went out again to the countries. We have a presence in Juba. We have a very talented executive director in Juba that is doing massively a uh, good job with her staff. And they are focusing not only on review of the constitution, where we went from along with other organizations, like the women, national women organizations and other groups, just making sure people understand what is the importance of the constitution for you as an individual and collectively as a community. We also engage very strongly with gender-based violence education. We partnered with the United Nations agencies that are helping treat uh, World Health Organization. Um, and so we help in building centers, treatment centers for JBV, educate the women that when you are exposed to gender violence, and men, by the way, then how do you report? How do you get treated? It's both. Report about the case and get treated. Some of the activities we are doing down there, our women and some of the few men are with us are very strong in, in uh, committed to go out. So um, we, we walk here and there. We make every opportunity when we are here to make sure that we reach out to our diaspora, we reach out to our population, and we give the right messages. So there you go, that's the Republic of South Sudan, outside of the current political notion. So maybe I'll stop here.
Yeah, perfect place to stop. Okay, two questions. Yes, hi, Pierre Rapalski from the House Foreign Affairs Committee in Africa Subcommittee. Uh, a week ago, at this time, I was in Juba, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, I, was, I, I know you said you didn't want to talk about the problems of the SPLM, but there is a widespread perception that the SPLM, and especially the SPLA, has become now, as opposed to an instrument of national unity, uh, an instrument for gen supremacy, Dinka supremacy. Um, how do you address that? Yeah. yeah, okay, I'm not so good in taking many questions, so I'll take one at a time. Okay, good. Um, it's not like I don't want to talk about it. It's because there's a lot of confusions and there's different groups. The government of national unity has its stakeholders. The government itself, the opposition, then there were a group called former detainees. They were part of the SPLA. Then you had the, the other parties and you had the religious groups. These are the people that were signatory to the peace agreement and they came and became part of the government. Four wings, government, opposition, FDs and other parties. And the agreement was given, was not developed by the people, so had reservation and always never agree on anything right or wrong. The SPLA, it's a good question because Sudan People Liberation Army was established during the struggle. And like I said, not everybody was trained to be a military person. Some people came in, some people were just trained periodically, and the training continued to take place. Now, when we raised our flag, there was a program to transform the guerrilla aspele to a conventional army. That didn't happen because it needed resources. And by the way, Donor groups, international community never fulfilled all the pledges that were given 2011. Do you know why? Because one year, by the time we were celebrating our one year anniversary 2011, we had a conflict with Sudan over oil. Because when we separated, Sudan cried and said, you are taking all the resources, you must. So then we were told you need to give them something. So we committed to a certain amount to help the country maintain its stand. I think, was it? 10 or quite a lump sum of years. And that is in addition that our oil is transited through Sudan. So we pay transit fees, transit tariff. We pay that economic lump sum. And we found out actually as the pipeline goes in, Sudan was exploiting our oil. There was a big lump sum that was actually taken without our knowledge not accounted for. You take that, you want me to pay these. What will that? So we had a, a, a dispute. We shut down the oil. 2011, we shut down the oil. The country went into austerity measures, shut down its operation to a big, great level, and it was difficult to pick up again. International community said, okay, listen, development projects that were supposed to take place after we flip from humanitarian agencies, humanitarian programs to development programs, we had a shutdown of the oil. So that flip did not take place, and we ended up being from humanitarian and back to humanitarian. None of the pledges took place. The pledges were important to transform the SPLA from a guerrilla to a conventional army. It didn't happen, one. Number two, Sudan continued until today empowering the militia groups. Actually, formed the militia groups. It is what we've done when we were fighting the war against Sudan. We organized ourselves in groups to, when you take an area, you leave it for that group, you take an area, you leave. So, 
Militia presence is also a big problem. We still have it for failures of the transformation of the army. Um, poverty has also formed a lot of groups there. Access to food became an issue. But mostly, I'll say the transformation did not take place, and, and it, it's, it's an issue until now. When you talk about tribalism, it's a wrong perception. And it is a perception similar to when the Anglo-Egyptians were leaving Sudan and they were saying, you are South Sudanese. And then everybody remained behind and just said, you are South Sudanese. I grew up in the north. And I was always, and I'm like, what South Sudan? Where is South Sudan? It's the same thing, this perception of ethnic, tribal. There are 64 tribes. The Anyanya one, Anyanya two, and the SPLA, we had leaders from all tribes. Yes, the main leader was Dr. John Garang, William Nguyen, you know, is from where we've got uh, leaders from the Equatorian groups, from the different tribes. Now, Dink and Nguyen and Chiluk, they are called Nilotic. They live alongside the River Nile. They follow after their cattle. Few of them do agricultural work, but they are nomadic. And they're so similar in their culture and ethnic way. The difference is very minor. They are being put against each other by external forces. It is not their intention. We still intermarriage. There's a still social engagement between the three groups. Politics, economic powers cannot really be the reason. For you, again, it comes back to the issue of don't call me wrong. Don't enforce a name on me until it becomes true. The ethnic tribal conflict that is there right now was forced into the people. And people ended up saying, OK, uh, you want it that way? We'll get it done that way. They are very stubborn. And in the history, if you go beyond the Anglo-Egyptian, beyond the Arab traders, that country was kingdoms. Kingdom of Fonj. You've got a number of kingdoms all the way towards the north, close to Egypt. They were kingdom. And we know very well that kingdom have rules, structures, institutions. They have law and order. Nowadays, kingdoms are more of colonialism, but we still have a few kingdoms here and there uh, that are, uh, in other words, in democracy could be called dictatorship because you have only one rule. King, and then that's what, what he says is not disputed. They are there without me mentioning the names of those kingdoms. So that country was kingdom. External forces then dispersed the kingdoms and transformed them into groups. And these groups, Sudan divided South Sudan into three. Upper Nile, Equatoria, and Baragazal. There were only three regions. They became 10, and so on, until the numbers they are where they are today. So. No, I dispute the ethnic tribe as a problem. Well, I'm just saying that objectively, the SPLA had, as of a few years ago, represented Dinka, Nuer, Shilo, Equatorians. <coughs> They've one by one disappeared. And most recently, when General Cirillo a few weeks ago left, the Equatorians have left. And now it is largely uh, perceived to be a Jang army. Um, it's good you say the word perceive. Perceive. Uh, yeah. 
Um, General Cirillo is a very good man. Yeah. General Cirillo fought and is a man of ethics. He had dispute, he had differences. And, and he and hasn't joined the rebellion. Because he wouldn't. He didn't, he didn't step out in rebellion. You know, anytime you work in any field, you have the right to, you know, and when you're signing a contract, wherever there is, right, you could be fired and you can resign. That's very normal. What makes it so significant in South Sudan because there's already a conflict. So any movement you do, my presence here in Washington more than a week per se, I'm perceived differently. I am this or that. People are just calling me out different names, but my assignment here is, is known to the leadership what it is, right? So perception is a big thing. And what I want us to do today is, yes, there's very wrong perceptions out there, but can we get it right? Can we look into the roots of the problems and, and say, okay, let's, let's start asking the right questions here and say, if this is a perception, how do we get it corrected? How do we help that institution called the SPLA get established back into being an army? It is not a conventional army until now. It's struggling to stand. And to do that, you need resources. Where are the resources? From being under austerity measures, we continue to be under economic stress. Uh, 2013, our currency was one dollar to three pound, South Sudanese pound. Today is one to 13, South Sudanese pound. Why? Because we were told in order for development funds to come in from the institutions that hold them, you need to, your currency is too strong. You need to devaluate it. We were advised to devaluate the currency. We were advised to do X, Y, Z. And we, we said, okay, okay. But neither the pledges of the first term or the pledges of now came in. So you devaluate the country and you just drop it down. You help the country to go into independence and then you just, it doesn't work that way. If we are being considered as part of person of the global institutions, then as much as we are agreeing to the Geneva Convention, the mutual engagement between the countries, if we are agreeing to human rights, if we are agreeing to all these structures, our institutions need to be upheld, uplifted, that's the right word, needed to be supported correctly. So then they are well established and they can get the job done. The constitutions and the other things. So yes, the army has weaknesses because, again, the army is made out of the population that is, have very little um, access to proper education. Let me tell you, after we signed the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, most of the leaders, the command, and others self-educated themselves. They made use of distant learning and in their own private time, acquired education. So you'll see someone jumping from elementary to high school to university. There's an importance of sequential systematic education. What it helps you develop common sense decisions at the right time. It helps your character building. It helps a lot of things when you go systematically. When you jump up and you acquire knowledge, and knowledge can be acquired in many ways. Thank you for the, internet, the IT. So many of them acquired knowledge, they are certified. Even the second vice president, Waniga, acquired his not only degree, his master's, and working on his PhD right now. A number of them uh, that I can name that just went online and did this education. So education is key. The SPLA can be reformed. 
current efforts are being done in such a way to reform them. One of the challenges was to be able to uh, absorb all the militia groups. So when we raised our flag, President Salfakir, what he did is he called for general amnesty, which is something he does all the time. He's like, okay, we need to do peace, come on, let's, let's do amnesty. Amnesty means put down your arm, come back inside and tell us what's your difference and we'll try to work with that. That has been abused. You've got a number of groups of people that went out because position, because this and that, and when they came inside, they find it's easy uh, for them to rebel back, for self-interest maybe, or for what, whatever gain it is. So um, we need to empower that. If we call him for amnesty, then immediately he was supposed to go for disarmament, right? Disarmament and engaging those militia groups. There have been funds from USAID for the Department of Disarmament because the commissioner, the head of that, has been a very active person with good programs. And a couple of institutions, the structures have been opened, vocational studies and whatnot. So then you absorb those who have been brought in, given amnesty, part of the population, and how do you take the arms from their hand and send them back into the population as useful citizens? Culture. Culture and customs. Our customs hold us together. Uh, I'm born to Adinka parents. And um, we were taught where our ancestors come from. And so that has always been our affiliation. Um, and then the fact that you are born in the north, we didn't have what is here right now that if you're born in the north, you have identity of the north. Like if you're born in the US, you're a US citizen by virtue, right, or by birth. Uh, those institutional identification were really not in place until now. They, they don't play a big role more than the culture and the customs of the people. So then you see people here uh, will come as a couple of the lost boys, lost girls that met here after college, got married, they have their children. What they teach is that you are, you see what I call you, that's who you are. So that's what it is. So uh, uh, for me to be raised in, in the north, I knew I'm from South Sudan, because my parents are from South Sudan. I am where my parents are from. That is the notion of that nation. Um, the different types and groups of people, even though they intermarried among themselves, they still maintain that, yes, uh, my parents are from Sudan and South Sudan. My mom is from the south, my dad is from the north, and then it's where that child was raised up will, will gain that identity and, and the calling of um, Here in the US, I think you have, you have significant southern accent and northern accent, but it's not as, as strong as it is over there. But um, it's culture and customs. Would it help to explain the policy of Arabization cartoon mm -hmm. to enhance sort of explain that, the background? 
the culture of Arabization? Yes. Uh, was it in the 70s when Nimeri was still in rule? Uh, that's when he started coming in with uh, identifying Sudan as an Arab Muslim country. And he went further by implementing the Sharia law as the only law to govern the country. And uh, they use that. Also, they use education as a, as a education and food, these two. Some of the marginalized groups, in order for you to have access to either food or education, you've got to be able to be a Muslim. And uh, you call yourself, according to Islam, Muhammad, Ali, whatever. Um, slavery also was there, very strong, in, in the borderline between Sudan and South Sudan. And that was from the time of the Arabs. And it existed for a long time. Uh, it's no longer there. But uh, like in 2011, many people were able to sort of shed their Arab identity and take back their sort of southern black African identities? They didn't need to shed. They never had an Arab identity. <laughs> they were southerners. Yeah. So uh, to get jobs, um, get education if you didn't speak Arabic. Where, in the south or in the north? We, we had one of the protocols, uh, the nas nationality protocol that gave both of us, Sudan and South Sudan, agreed to have mutual nationalities, which means if you are in the South, you can. But again, that remained as a paper. The culture and the customs uh, stood strong. Um, they, it didn't have much of impact because Sudanese remain Sudanese and South Sudanese remain South Sudanese. Uh, the challenge was, those of us who grew up in the north spoke Arabic. And uh, when we came to the south, South Sudan had English as the main language, the national language. Then it was very tough to acquire jobs for them. South Sudanese from the north settling in the south had a challenge. And I think that explains why now with the conflict, uh, they immediately ran back. Because the, the conformity, you know, when, when you are conform to an area, you find it easy for you to just get back to it uh, faster than any. But uh, the national ID whether or nationality was not really implemented in either. Sudan did not give us Sudanese passport, neither did we give South Sudanese, South Sudanese passport. So much of the protocol, which after 2011 became a cooperative agreement. So 2005, with the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, they were called protocols never implemented. Independence came. The protocol had to be rewritten, and they became cooperative agreement, uh, nine of them, uh, looking into outstanding issues between Sudan and South Sudan. And they're still there. We haven't really resolved much of it. But socially, the two nations share a lot. They share a lot. They are still very much engaged socially and custom-wise. So the distinct now between us and them is this Arab affiliation, our Arab identification. For us, we are not Arab. So Islam is there in South Sudan as well, to an extent. Um, both Sudan and, South and, and, and United States are government. 
and Geneva Convention's mandate, we have an embassy here, and U.S. have an embassy. That's, that's one of the connections. We have uh, a big population here, that's diaspora, and they're U.S. citizen, and uh, they go through the system by speaking to their congressmen and congresspeople and educating them and taking their concerns up to the Congress. So the Congress and our legislative assembly, the State Department, our uh, national government, through their different channels are engaged. The people have also opportunity to be able to reach out. For example, currently, we have a looming famine. Uh, you remember I said River Nile flows and divides the, the state into two. So the eastern part is more sued. It has all water all the time. The western part, farther away from the Nile, always encounter every couple of years uh, drought and starvation. So that region in the, big, in the rainy season had a lot of uh, floods and then now drought. So they, 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 both times there was shortage of food. That is, these are the regions that are uh, one of the two regions that are spelled to have uh, famine. The northern region, where the oil field is Bantu, um, had had conflict consequently since 2013 and was very difficult to bring in relief or food or support. Again, the issue of infrastructure makes it very difficult to move food from one point to another. We have an area in the northern east part called Run, very agriculturally well um, production. But uh, minister, the ministers in the cabinet tries the best level to be able to, how do we take food from that area to the areas that doesn't have? Uh, the conflict of 2013 actually kind of played a big role in displacement. And when people are displaced, they did farm, but not to an extent of supporting others beyond supporting themselves. So we have uh, displaced camps that are under UN. They are called protection sites, POC. Uh, these are being funded and supported by the UN, but then uh, anybody who's not registered within the POC doesn't have access to those things, so they're out there. But we believe so much that uh, we are able to counteract all this if we are able to just start doing the development of the roads and overcoming. While the relief comes in, immediately there's agricultural projects and programs that are put in place to enhance the productivity. Uh, the, the leadership recently was in Addis, uh, signing uh, some memorandum of understanding to build roads. This is our main, main challenge right now for both security and food security, if we have them in place. And so Addis pledged to build a road towards the eastern part. Uh, one will go to uh, southern part of east, southeast, and the other one will go to northeast and help with transport of both fuel, and reduce the pressure with the north, and also food production. The Nile produce a lot of fish also, but you know, um, it is not well used in terms of um, making it uh, for the market. The means for fishing and marketing it are challenging, so. Following up on that, isn't the main reason that there is you know, famine and food insecurity throughout the country because both SPLA and IO make it a policy of attacking civilian populations and the planting season has been missed. No, they were not fighting in the middle of 2013. There was an attack in some of the cities, 
But right after that, when they signed the peace agreement, they were engaged in the field where they are. Uh, the displacement played a big role, though, because people could not farm uh, accordingly. It's, there is a big impact, but let me correct you. It's not across the whole country. It, no, it's not. But it's eventually, not. eventually, with the high rate of currency, there is food in the market, by the way, but nobody can buy it. If I get my salary in South Sudanese pound, and the pound now is 13 to a dollar, the highest salary is 300 of a minister. Because when you do the equivalent. And then you go to the market, and the prices of the market are just following the dollar rate. So the price of the dollar, the economic stress, plays a big role in bringing the country to this. So we have actually two wars that are going on in that country of ours, of mine rather. South Sudan is facing the military conflict, and it's facing the economic conflict. Because when you, when you push me to devaluate my currency, and you push me to reduce it, and, and, and I can't, uh, and, and you don't even bring in the pledges that you commit to do, it leaves me powerless. And eventually, any attempt to do it otherwise is not possible. So then the pledges needs to come in to do all the necessary adjustment. The um, restriction, because of the move between the, the army and the opposition, yes, there are certain corridors, but they opened them. There was a command that was given by the president himself to the Minister of Defense and his, all the, all the uh, organized forces. They have to allow those corridors open to allow the relief to go in. Because actually, he came up even publicly and said, uh, we, we, we made a mistake, we have done wrong. So. Uh, it's time to move on. I mean, Gay and Central Equatoria was not touched by the 2013 conflict, and now it's virtually depopulated, and the population is in northern Uganda, some 900,000 people. Why is that? Perception. No, 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 no. I, I was there. That's fine. I agree. Mm -hmm. There have been, been uh, attacks from both sides. Yeah, we have, nice. you have a group called Arrow Boys. Have you heard of them? Arrow boys? Yes. Arrow boys. Arrow boys, yes. They are in Equatoria. Mm -hmm. So uh, what have they been doing? The, 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 you know, I'm not saying that you know, the war massacre didn't happen. I'm not saying that the I.O. is not doing the same thing. You know, there was, uh, there was this uh, questionnaires for the population that was moving from Yei to northern Uganda. And it's very unfortunate that, uh, yes, some atrocities happened there. but. Some of the civilians were asked, why are you moving? The answer was, uh, well, my neighbor's moving. Not because they were affected themselves. My neighbor's moving. The whole area's moving. I'm not denying the fact that there have been some atrocities. There have been. It, there have been attacks. There have been, let me tell you, let me tell you this. I work in Malakal, and there is one of the counties is called Baliat. When 2013 happened, those population moved out to Juba and moved out to Ye. Why Ye? Because 91, the first attack that conflict happened between the leadership, people moved out and dispersed into those areas and settled in. If you've been to Ye and Numeli, it's beautiful. It's high rise, no floods, no mosquitoes, no, it's very beautiful. So people who moved in there settled and 40,000 were there, became part of that population. 
a second attack of 2013, people just joined their former grandparents or whoever that were there in 91 and settled in there. Now, from Baliet, I had a bus full of women and children. And we said, okay, we have a new government. We have this government of national unity, security. People, go back to your homeland. As they were crossing from Numili, and these are no army in them, they were burned. By who? By the Nuer. It could be the Nuer, it could be the Equatorian. There have been, there have, and this is why I told you earlier, when I started my discussion here, is that I don't want to get into that field. Because I have facts, as much as you have facts, and we can sit and argue, but that's not the issue. The issue is this, there is a mass displacement. There is two, three factors that are causing the current situation there. Whether it's the political, the military, but then the economic crisis, which is being ignored. But it is there, and it's playing a big role in the so-called famine. And again, international agencies make money in crisis. That's a fact. The more there's a crisis, the more they have money raised for themselves. Because when you tell me you are t receiving, in the in Jongle, an announcement came that about 20 million US dollars was given to the Minister of Health in Jongle. And I was a minister there. I was like, okay, where is it? Went to the governor went to the authorities, visited the USAID, visited the embassy, and I was given an explanation as follows. My governor didn't have access to that money, neither did I within the state ministry. But international agencies, the UN with their humanitarian agencies, had access to all that money, and they had the leverage to divide it accordingly. They hired six helicopters, four for them, two for humanitarian, right? These helicopters were sitting, and I've seen them, and I know they were traveling between Bor, Juba, and Bibor. And Bibor was a very hot spot at that time, and it's a very significant rich land. Gold and uranium and so on. So, resources, again and again, we can go into those and look into the accountability of all these agencies that are dispersing these resources. How are they doing it? By the time you pay the top level, you come down, you come down, not even 10% goes to the person that needs it, actually. So, facts are there, there is a conflict. Facts are there, they are more than one player, including my government. Because once there's a dispute between me and you, it's always me and you responsible for it. It can never be one person. Even if you are the one who started it, I stand responsible for responding to what you started. But then, conflict has to end. And we have to come back around and the, the, the people cannot be just live under perception. And if so, then let's put the right perception in place. If I can just comment, what you just described, I think it counts for 80 to 90% of the biases and the intelligence reports that come back to US policymakers because the NGOs have a vested interest on the contractor level, they make their friends they get different versions and develop biases based on interests that they might develop. A lot of the contractors might have, um, you know, coffee plantations in Equatorial. Business interests. Uh, they might sit on boards of financial management groups that have oil interests. So, like, to, to say that there's more than one player sort of shaping the narrative and our perception is, is quite an understatement. It's like it's a level of three dimensional chess. 
you know, you get this Tompkin Village tour when you go to these places, depending on, you know, your translator and who their friends yeah. are locally. Um, it's very, very difficult for uh, Westerners who don't know who's who and who did what to mm -hmm. do to make sense of it. But really, the heart of the issue is like the international community forced Rick and Char and um, Salvatier to work together. It's ridiculous. There's no logic in that, you know. So um, I guess I'm just concurring with the point that the international community is sort of meddling exacerbated these things, but the, the historical foundation is that all of these groups were united at one point mm -hmm. um, and are certainly capable of working together. Um, Absolutely. Well, when Khartoum was the enemy, and even then, you know, as you mentioned, 1991, it, uh, you know, the, the but look, Sudan is on the verge of a humanitarian catastrophe. You have roughly one-tenth of the population is in refugee camps, and it's projected to go up to two million uh, by the end of, of this year. There's more than enough blame to go around. Have to address the, the, the problem squarely. And uh, if we're going to move forward, there has to be an acknowledgement by the Jang as well as to their as to their role. We can talk about money that is doesn't get down to the people. We also have to look at the bank accounts of Salva and Rafe and Paul along and all those people as well, how many resources have been diverted. I mean, I think we all want to see uh, peace, but people are suffering and they're traumatized. And it's, you know, it, it, uh, it, it requires all parties to put aside their you know, ethnic and, and historical reasons. I don't know if that's going to happen. The President's call for national dialogue. We'll see what happens. And they the Century Report never looked at the bank accounts of Pagana Moon and Mama Cole and all those people. It, it, absolutely. I mean, it's all to, you know. They the, looked the, only at the Dinka. No, but no, but it, 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 whether it's rank or all of them. I mean, it's not, it, it, it's just, I'm not trying to, yeah. I'm not trying to pick on the, on, on the Dinka, but right now you have a situation with the Baldwin. Let me ask you this. 35% of the country is, you know, at war with the uh, with the, 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 the 65%, and uh, it's not going to end well for anybody, and we don't want to see that. But yes, you want to ask the question? Yes. Um, under stressful condition, who do you trust? Under these conditions? Under you, as right. a person. Under stressful conditions, who do you trust? As a general matter or in South Sudan? No, no, no. I, I'm asking as a person. As a person, as a person. As a general matter, as a general matter you, you, I think you trust religious institutions. And if there is hope in South Sudan, there are the, the churches, and not the elder generation, but the younger generation, including the lost boy generation, but in particular, well, institutions that function uh, are, the, are the churches, Catholic, the Anglican, um, though there are problems at the top that we can talk about that. It comes back to what I said earlier, that we need to strengthen our institutions and leave people out of it, right? Because when you start talking about people, you'll have an accusation here and there. Whether you're accusing Kir or you're accusing Riek or you're accusing... It's not about these people. It's about the structure of South Sudan. And then the point is here is this. It's not just ending conflict or giving relief. 
It is about the structure of South Sudan as a state, a sovereign state. You, it must be maintained and must be protected. And so we have got to find a way to partner to get this institution strong enough to go to the next level of elections. You don't like these people? It doesn't matter. What matters is that he was elected, he needs to be re-elected out of the position. People are saying we don't want him, he steps down on all these things. But what happened to the presidency? The conflict of 2013 was in presidency. The conflict of 2016 was in presidency. And by the end of the day, we must protect presidency. Because once, once the leader of the state is taken otherwise not by elections, that country will never settle. You will never bring it to a point of accountability or responsibility as one of the sovereign nation. It loses its sovereignty at the point. We must protect it, not as a person, as an institution, and help him move the country because human beings are there for a period of time. Why are we focusing on human beings? And they make mistakes, we must have an institution to bring them to accountability. If you don't have that institution in place, then what are you talking about? Why are you blaming him when you, don't, you are not having the structures to tell him you've done wrong according to one, two, three, and these are the consequences thereof? So the transitional constitution must be made permanent. The country has to go to the next level of election to elect its next level leader. Whether it is the GN Council of Elders, these are elders, these are seniors that actually have been in politics for so long, and they, and they share their opinion. It could be right, it could be wrong. But in any community, according to my tradition and cultures, elders are respected. Not to say they do wrong or right, but elders have the ability to have wisdom from the experiences, and that's a common sense. I've seen the sun before you, then I have more knowledge than you. But again, you can have a wisdom given to you by God, right? So then, it is important. Now, let me, let me bring everything into a close here. And we can discuss a lot of things. The atrocities that are happening in Ye, the atrocities that are happening in Wau, in Malakal, I've seen two conflicts personally, one in Jongle. My hospital was full of dead people. They are sick. Why would you kill them? In Malakal, another conflict happened right in front of me. Aspiele, Ayo, it doesn't really matter. Both Aspiele and Ayo are South Sudanese. Dean Kanwer Shuluk, they are all South Sudanese. The identity part of it is very crucial here. How you call me matters to me. How you perceive me matters to me. And if it is wrong, then we'll never agree on how to get any problems resolved. This is the matter here. We must find how to protect the state of the Republic of South Sudan as a sovereign nation. It is leaders, they're going through a process. The whole nation being in conflict for more than two decades the same people who led the conflict, they are the same people who are leading. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. Can you give them the credit that they were actually able to bring it thus far with all the mistakes they have done? All of them. But they brought it up until now. It's a sovereign state. Okay, now how do we move from here further? The state must be protected. The presidency must be protected. And I'm not talking about people. I'm, I'm talking about the structure. Bring it to a place, and that's where... I'm asking for partnership. That's where I'm saying, let's partner together. Let's bring all the place in place. People are people, but structures remain. People of South Sudan will remain as tribal as they are, 
not tribalistic, they're tribes, they're groups of people. And it is no man's mate. They found themselves in that space of land. It's significant to have such a large amount of people in one space and coexist, and it's a surplus, which is being abused now in the name of the resources that are there. So challenges are there, but then, like I said, as I started, I'm very passionate because I've been part of advocating and at the same time participating in implementing what I have advocated in. I advocated for the Republic of South Sudan way before in the 90s. We talked about, about the marginalization. And then I also participated in development. I have got what I can show for what I'm saying. I can show that we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, in a small scale. And I'm very positive, if I could do it in that small scale, more collective efforts can make a big difference across the board. And by the end of the day, there is hope. If we look into structures that are well established, first world, world power, uh, countries like where we are now, the United States of America, has its institution and the laws and regulation, but it's also going through turmoil, political turmoil, because of the change. Because things are happening not as they perceive them to happen. They're making a lot of noise. There's a lot of issues that are happening all over. A lot. Media doing their own things, politicians doing their own things. But we are peaceful. We still can go to our jobs, our schools, and do our own things. And still, I can have this platform while CNN is doing its own things over there. Why? Why is US still standing? Because it has permanent constitution. It has a structure. It has laws that are above any leader thereof. That's what I want for my nation. I want it to have a structure that if you do a mistake, the law will account for you. We don't have to chase you or take you to ICC or whatever that is. The law within the country. And the people deserve better than this. Then my identity as South Sudanese has to be put in the right perception. Thank you. Right. Thank you very much.